0: Your host today is Nora Ammer, a researcher in Culture and Media Studies and a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Lancaster University. Nora's research aims to gain a deeper understanding of data journalism, associated opportunities and challenges.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of What is the Future of Education podcast from Lancaster University. I am your host Nora Amr and our guest today is Professor Sarah Dillon. She is a professor of literature at the University of Cambridge. Uh, I have to admit I'm a little bit nervous to host a podcaster and a radio expert but I hope I can be even a little bit closer to her liver. Hello professor and thank you for joining us.
0: Hello, it's a pleasure, and no need to be nervous at all. <laughs>
1: thank you, thank you. Uh, now I know, uh, Professor, you have um, a wonderful journey. Uh, you you tell your story in your website and uh, uh, how how you grow up in Lancaster. You were telling me offline uh, in a few seconds that you were born in Lancaster, and then you, you how you tell the story in your website. I find it's really close to the heart because I was can touch the the feeling and the journey so you you are you born in lancaster and then you study between uh cambridge warwick and then you work also in london uh, in book and publishing uh, sectors and then you return back to cambridge as a lecturer in literature and film so i'm I think I'm more curious to know more about you, Professor. Can you tell us more about your experience in academia, your research interest, and also your, the relationship of your research to maybe the, the topic of the hour podcast, The Future of Education?
0: Of course, yeah. Um, so as you have noted, I've I've traveled geographically, at least within the United Kingdom, um, but I've also traveled uh, disciplinarily, one might say, as well. Um, if I hadn't come to Cambridge to start reading philosophy, I was going to do maths. Um, so I uh, my ways have, have uh, bifurcated, interestingly, along my career. I did come to do philosophy, then I changed to literature, um, but I And I I spent a lot of time in philosophy and literature in my early career, but much more recently over the last um, five years or so, my interest in the interactions between literature and science have uh, come to the foreground again, as well as um, the, book Story Listening, which was published in 2021 with Claire Craig, where I'm very much thinking about how you make a case for the cognitive value of stories, so the the kinds of knowledge that they offer, and how you make that case to an external audience so i've spent most of my career within higher education but how do you convince people outside of education of the value of my discipline in particular english but of the humanities disciplines more generally and the audience we were thinking of trying to convince in particular was policymakers so i am not a scholar of education i haven't studied um, practices and processes of learning but obviously i am a practitioner as a as a professor Um, pedagogy is a huge part of my job and what i do and this podcast comes at a very nice moment i was in new zealand over the summer on a teaching fellowship at the university of canterbury and i gave some papers around the story listening work and a number of the questions i got were precisely on this topic how has the work that you've been doing to advocate for the value of the humanities, to lay out the cognitive value of what we study and what we produce, how does that connect to education? How does that connect to what we teach our students? How does that connect to ongoing learning in wider publics? So I'm delighted to be here to kind of uh, poke at those questions more.
1: Wonderful. And can can you tell me, uh, or tell us uh, and our uh, listener, what kind of answer you give uh, for this question?
0: Well, I'm still thinking about it. Um, one of the things we're trying to do with the next raft of story listening work is build capacity in early career researchers in academia and at post at postdoctoral level and at PhD level um, for people to do Projects around what I call public criticism so that's that 's thinking about how we study our discipline but in a, how, or how we do the studies of our discipline, but in a way that produces results that are useful and um, helpful to people not within our discipline, and this is not to diminish. Uh, disciplinary work which feeds back within a discipline and and creates you know evolution and vitality that's hugely important but can we add to that work that that points outwards and that is helpful outwards and i think that's probably easier to do at early career and phd what i'm less sure about is what that means for undergraduate education because i think at least within the institution i work in the university of cambridge which is obviously very old and has very embedded um, traditions around what we call our tripos which is roughly equivalent to a curriculum um, paradoxically both within that setting change is very easy but also big change is very difficult so i learned a lot uh being in New Zealand from their sort of almost more liberal arts uh, kind of introductory courses in the first year, which do build in interdisciplinary working, which do build in thinking about the public value and the impact of your work. And I think we could do more of that at undergraduate level um, in the UK. I also um, was thinking more about what it means. Uh, for people not in higher education. I'm the mother of a nearly 14 year old and an 11 year old. So I am experiencing secondary education in the UK at the moment as a parent. Um, And I'm also uh, thinking about arguments we made in the book about uh, needing to help and develop what we call um, narrative literacy, which um, I'm sure some of your contributors will have talked about Riel Miller's uh, work, who was the head of futures at UNESCO on futures literacy. Um, and narrative literacy, as far as we're concerned, is is the ability to understand and process narratives rigorously. So you know where the stories you're consuming are coming from. You know, therefore, whether they're reliable and rigorous or not. You're able To present, you're able to contextualize the information you're getting from stories alongside other types of evidence that you will also be learning to process, like data um, and other kinds of mathematical evidence. So, we do think there's a very strong case for, um, especially in an age where stories circulate so visibly and quickly and from so many different sources, to really, in the future of education at all levels and across all sectors of societies, develop that narrative literacy more.
1: That sounds wonderful. And I think um, when you talk about your experience in Malaysia and how this is affect you, and I think this is really important because how you learn from other approach, other culture, other uh, other ways of learning, you still have this experience to influence your research. And also as a mother, you, you say you are, you are a mother. So even that, I think this is a really wide experience for um, for anyone to to. Predict about uh, the future of education. What's going on? I think this is will lead me to the the next question. Uh, to to uh, move a little bit more specifically in, um, into your uh, experts, your recent paper dive into uh, collaborative storytelling games. Hmm. So can can you walk us through uh, a scenario or example where such a game effectively uh, enhanced student anticipation uh, or critical thinking?
0: Yes, so that was a research project. So it wasn't done with students. It was done with members of the public. Uh, My postdoctoral researcher was Olivia Belton, who's wonderful. Um, And we received funding to use some kind of, we were given very free reign, some kind of innovative method for determining people's anticipatory assumptions in relation to the future of autonomous flight. So uh, to put that in sort of less futures terminology, um, you know, what do people think about the idea of aircraft being um, automated even more Um, than they already are because they are uh, already to some extent automated Um, and so my postdoc Olivia um, devised this wonderful storytelling game that she adapted from um, the tabletop game uh, microscope and uh, we used focus groups um, from the public that we'd recruited through libraries and posters at other community centers and they came along and they were prompted to develop together a narrative that, that had to have a beginning, a middle and an end. And in order to try and mitigate against uh, natural group dynamics, where some people dominate uh, more easily than others, um, it's a a turn-taking game. So each person is responsible for adding another index card to the story. They can discuss with the group, but in the end, it's their decision, what they put there. Um, And they created these uh, wonderful, interesting stories, which we then were able to analyze afterwards in order to see what those stories revealed about the assumptions that they were making about a future of autonomous flight so it didn't it didn't aim to change those assumptions and here we come back to education it was more diagnostic Um, more work would be needed then to think about how you would use that that game or an evolution of that game to start to potentially get them to question those assumptions um although i'm always very hesitant as a researcher not to go in with some kind of ideological project of my own with an aim of you know where you want to get them i'm much more comfortable with the more objective (laughs) diagnosing but if you were to then want to uh um, um nudge their uh, assumptions in particular directions. Um, it would be interesting to see what other collaborative games you could use to try and do that.
1: Oh, that, that's really interesting and excellent. Now, considering that there is a lot of um, the involving nature of technology, how do you see emerging technologies like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, influencing the um, integration of collaborative uh, storytelling into educational practices?
0: I think one of the nice things about story is that it's one of the (laughs) um, I'm always hesitant to make these grand claims but I'm going to do it one of the earliest and most persistent forms of technology Um, so uh, storytelling is already a technology Um, it's already uh, a very intelligent technology um, and a technology far developed than what we call artificial intelligence which is still actually fairly uh, routine and fairly stupid uh, in, in you know comparable to human intelligence uh, automated forms of decision making or, or language processing so I'm very uh, wary of and skeptical um, around the that the hype cycles around AI and I think we're in another one at the moment so I think the nice thing about story is it's accessible. It's democratic. You don't need lots of technologies. You need people and a safe place and 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 your imagination. And if you're if you really need it, you need some kind of pen and paper and and uh, or, or note cards. And so I think storytelling is a is a leveler in many ways. Um, and it's a way in which different groups of people can meet um, on on a on the same terrain to some extent and start from there to learn about each other's points of view and to collaborate and to imagine um, different potential futures or pathways to different potential futures that doesn't mean I'm, uh, I'm i'm massively skeptical about the integration of technology into education at all i think it has its uses we're all having to adapt at the moment to chat gpt and what it may do is simply mean that um, some of the more mundane elements of prose construction can be outsourced, but it's not going to replace um, the uh, imagination and the creativity and the intelligence that's behind what goes into that prose in in more complex forms. So my my attitude to technology is bring it in when it's useful. Um, it's most useful when there's already a human in the loop and, 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 and there continues to be, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to replace some of the very good technologies we already have.
1: Amazing. But let's go back to the method that you use in the paper, because um, the focus group and to ask them to tell their story. So can, can you tell us more about the method that you used? Because I find it really
0: interesting. What more do you what more do you want to know?
1: So, um If you can explain it for our audience, how did you do the uh, the the method for this paper? So you, there was I think four focus group or three.
0: Yes, this was this paper was a very long time ago now. I'm really sorry. (laughs) And uh, and was led primarily by my postdoc. Um, So uh, I I think it was three. It might have been four um so my postdoc recruited a number of participants for a number of focus groups and they were invited to a room uh, at the research center that i was based at at the time they were given some food and some drink they were initially um uh, shown some clips from um sort of uh, primarily dominant hollywood movies around autonomous flight uh, when we looked back at the method we We wondered if that was wrong actually, and I think if we did it again, we might have missed that bit out because we think that the clips that we chose necessarily then steered them to thinking about certain things such as weaponization um, rather than other things. So we think that that was probably a little too leading, Um, but as with all these kinds of experiments, you, you try something and you reflect on, whether it worked and then you refine your method. Um, and after they'd watched the clips, they then had an open discussion um, to sort of get their their juices flowing and their ideas going and get them comfortable with each other because these were strangers um, they never met before um, around the topic. And then they were given the, uh, the index cards and they were given the instructions for the game. Olivia chaired the sessions, but Uh, in a a non-interventive role, in the sense that her job was merely to make sure that they followed the rules of the game, but not to intervene in any of the um, story creation. And then one by one, they they each took it in turns to write their bit of the story on a card, place it somewhere along the table. Um, They didn't have to place it chronologically, they could place it anywhere along the row of all the other cards that had been placed down. So if they wanted to kind of jump back and add something to an early story element, they could um and they uh, eventually had to get to some sort of conclusion uh and i think we went around each circle maybe three times to get a complete story
1: that was really interesting but the the reason why i ask you about the method because it was when i was reading your paper i was thinking about the how can we use this method in a classroom do you, do you mm. think this is possible
0: so i haven't used um that specific storytelling game with students, but I have used um, Stuart Candy's game, The Thing from the Future, um, which is a wonderful card game that he gives an account of in Miller's Transforming the Future UNESCO book, which is very nicely open access available um, online. Um, and uh, it's a card game that provokes what I think of as flash fiction. So very short stories um, you get uh, certain steers so a certain a certain distance temporarily into the future a certain object that you need to think about a certain kind of um, mood or emotion that you need to connect it with and everybody writes these very short flash fictions uh, and hands them into the moderator and then the moderator reads them out and everybody has to kind of um, vote for the one that they like best in some way and i i used that in a feminist science fiction mphil seminar and it was very good for one for generating actually of your creative writer um, lots of kind of uh story kernels that could be then expanded you could see uh you could see story worlds being built around these small little flash fictions but also again for repeat revealing people's assumptions about possible futures and also whether to some extent they were primarily dystopian or primarily utopian or somewhere in between, and they do tend to go to extremes, but then story likes extremes to some extent. The collaborative game, yes, I think um there's no reason why it couldn't work uh in a classroom, and there's no reason why it couldn't work in a you know a, a primary school classroom to to some extent, maybe not reception, but uh once they Uh, are able to read and write a little bit. And this comes back to my point about the technology of story being um, so accessible, um, because it means that children can do it too. Um, And if you're thinking about the future of education, you're not just thinking about the future of educational practices, but you're thinking about who who you're educating into that future to some extent and uh, one of my colleagues here at Cambridge David Runciman has done some very interesting recent work Um, in fact if you uh, pop along uh, sorry to advertise a different podcast but uh, to the uh, Bennett Institute for Public Policy podcast at Cambridge uh, David has done um, a podcast on his work around um, uh, the children having the right to vote basically um, and the sense in which uh, younger people um sh- should be i was going to say should be respected more, and I guess actually that's the point trusted more to to be rational to be able to think things through to have their own views on important topics, particularly the ones that are going to affect them when those of us who are older are going to be long gone um and so I would love to see these kind of storytelling games um built in uh, uh to 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 also give young people hope i'm thinking particularly about the climate crisis and evidence that there is around a kind of um, a despair in younger people possibly about what the future portends and stories are one way of also generating not not necessarily falsely utopian but at least Uh, brighter possible futures that we might move towards Um, and and also you know children love stories they love listening to them they love telling them Um, so it it would work very well I think across all all kinds of educational settings.
1: I think I, I totally agree with you because I also have a child and I know how storytelling is a perfect way sometimes if he can Tell by himself what happened or how he learned something. I think I, I, I see your point here. And let's go to um, another question. And um, I I wish we have more time. But <laughs> <laughs> but can can we zoom further? In um, how do you see the role of storytelling evolving in the future of education, especially in terms of um, preparing students for uncertain and rapidly changing world?
0: yeah um it needs to be part obviously of a of a, a wide range of skills um and methods that we use in education so you know I'm, I'm talking about the bit that i know about but um i hope that your other contributors will talk about other bits and the, that will create a fuller picture um but it's it's a useful a really useful tool that can help them start to I mean I'm repeating myself to some extent here but I think the point's important to imagine uh, possible futures and also um, to some extent to take control of the imagining of the future Um, when I was uh, chatting with Riel Miller um, in Paris just before the pandemic Um, he was talking about very interesting work that he'd been doing in parts of Africa um, using different kinds of futures methods some of them narrative futures methods to um, support uh, younger people there um, developing a sense of ownership over their future um, and developing a sense of empowerment I guess that 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 they they could change it and they could they could create it along lines that meant something to them. Very interestingly and perhaps controversially, he said one of the things that had that to be done at the beginning of the work was actually to kind of loosen the hold of... Uh, Western imaginaries around African futures. So uh, loosen the hold of Black Panther <laughs> to some extent, which had just come out when he was doing the work, in order to create a space for these young people to to create their own their own futures. So it's a very empowering um, it's a very empowering tool in that sense. Um, but it's also, of course, um, people more skeptical of story. Um, it's it can be risky. Um, you know, we can make anything up. Um, and that is both stories kind of brilliantly liberatory uh, freeing potential but also there also when to some extent then you do need to embed it um, amongst uh, other subjects other ways of knowing and understanding the world Um, so you're able to also be careful Um, around stories. They are, um, I think, one of the phrases we use, weapons of mass persuasion. Um, And so also becoming robust in response to the power of of disingenuous stories the power of we talk about disinformation and misinformation I mean, we could also just talk about you know lies <laughs> um and being able to be robust in response to that and to understand how seductive stories are and therefore why they're so powerful um, and, and how you can use that power but also how you can be wary of its misuse
1: that's really amazing so i was thinking about this method and the storytelling and do, do you think we can use it to predict how the future of education is going to look like from the perspective of educator and students?
0: Oh, I love it. So you'd use a, it'd be a kind of meta, meta study. So you'd, the topic of the storytelling exercise would be the future of education. Yes. Why not? <laughs> I think that would be a lovely idea. And I'd be I'd be really interested to know what people came up with
1: yeah i think if, if there is uh, if there is any of our listener doing any research about the future of education this is i think i believe this is really interesting way because you you have no idea how people think or feel about the learning process yeah uh, and 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 everyone has its own story and his own feeling and his own experience and especially when we talk about diversity um classroom where there's people from all around the world. For example, I was talking last week, oh, sorry, last month with um, uh, another professor about uh, se- semiotics uh-huh. and how this is also in, in education and one of the things he was talking about it is um, how people understand samples differently and use samples differently. I think the this, this story, the collaborative storytelling can be a way also to understand how people uh, deal with these samples in the classroom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The um, So it's interesting you use the word predict because of, one of my areas of expertise as a literature scholar is um, science fiction and speculative fiction. And there's a... a Science fiction theory has long dispelled the idea that science fiction is about predicting the future. Um, we can't predict the future, it hasn't happened yet. We can't predict something that hasn't happened. Um, and there's a very uh, renowned theorist of science fiction, Darko Suvin, who uh, still casts a very long shadow over science fiction theory for better or worse, depending on your perspective. But he talks about science fiction as the literature of cognitive estrangement. So it's not about predicting. Action, but it's about taking you somewhere else so that you return to your present moment and think about it differently and the reason your question reminded me of that is that one of the one of the issues I guess that I have with Stevens' theory is that he assumes that everybody starts from the same place so he talks about the zero world of the reader and the author um, which is the world you're experiencing you know now at this moment um, and that the, the, the story estranges you from that and takes you somewhere else but what he doesn't account for is that people's zero worlds are radically different depending on on gender on race on geographical location on class on wealth all the factors that um we we now uh, tend to take into account in a way that perhaps we didn't 50 years ago or so um so so one of the things i'd like i think storytelling collaborative storytelling could do is actually Um, even if it doesn't get you very far into the future, it can at least help establish and uh, understand where people are now, Um, because we don't actually always know where uh, other people are or in the classroom, where our what the zero world of our students is. So that would be a very interesting way of at least establishing the differential experiences of the present from which you then wish to extrapolate into or think about the future.
1: Do you have any advice for the educator? I know from your reflecting on your research and experience. So what key takeaways or messages would you like educator and also our listener uh, to remember when thinking about the future of education?
0: Oh that's a hard question because that positions me as someone <laughs> wise enough or authoritative enough to be giving advice which I don't consider myself to be. Um uh I am um, I know the kinds of advice that I give to my students about learning. I know the kinds of advice that I give to my children. Um I think that actually uh and this is this is rather evading the question but I think it's um it's sort of an answer which is that the advice would be to listen actually um, and to learn from other people's practices and other people's stories Uh, whenever uh, i'm in certain areas and i talk about storytelling and story listening people immediately think about the telling they think about how do i how do i use story to get my message across or how do i use story to communicate Um, these findings or this knowledge Um, I'm actually much more interested in listening Um, what can we learn about other people about the world about our potential futures if we listen to the stories that are already out there Um, and that means for my discipline, stories that are written or made, so te- textual stories, films, graphic novels, uh, story, uh, short stories. But it also means listening to other people's oral narratives, other people's cultural narratives. And so I think as an educator, I'm less interested in telling and <laughs> much more interested in listening.
1: That's amazing. And I have to ask this, this question. If you had the power to change anything in education, what would that be?
0: Oh, you've given me a magic wand, (laughs) how would I use it? Um, I think in higher education, which is the area of education I work in, I would try and break down disciplinary silos, even at university level. Um, There's a lot of talk about the way in which we have to specialise so early um, in the English education system. Um, and actually we come right back to your first question about my own story um, you know do I do sciences at a level or do I do the humanities well I persisted and did both I did maths and English um, but that I had to fight for that and I think you then can't maintain that at higher education so um, more breaking down of that barrier more being able to skill yourself up and have the support to skill yourself up across a number of different disciplines. Um, that would be my higher education plea. My, my magic wand if I was able to use it at secondary school, and this links very much to my own home discipline of English, uh, would be to undo the changes that were made to the English secondary ed- uh, curriculum, um, which have seen plummeting uh, numbers of applications to university in English and actually because of plummeting numbers to a level, primarily because of boys, uh, young men um, not pursuing the discipline actually. The, the numbers of women have stayed fairly stable. Um, and we need to be able to teach children at school level, Um, In the ways in which we teach English at university, which is a a vibrant, dynamic, exciting discipline where you need skills in history, you need if you're going to do digital work skills in digital humanities, Uh, you don't have to memorise quotes, you don't dare I say even need to have read all the big canonical texts, you just need to develop an excitement and a skill and a passion for understanding what stories are, what poetry is and how it works in the world and what effects it's, ha- happening, it's having. And I think that we've lost that in our secondary education. And it's both deeply saddening for our discipline, but also deeply worrying in terms of the effect that it's having. Um, so that would be where I'd use my Wadget one there.
1: Well, I'm with you. In, <laughs> in <both. laughs> and I think I have one more question. How do you see the future of education? If we talk about After 15 or or 50 years uh, from now, how do you think it's going to look like?
0: It's a very difficult question because in some ways it hasn't changed very much since 50 to 100 years ago. Um, uh, I think um, education has in some ways been quite slow to change. I remember listening um, a good few years ago now to somebody talking about why we teach um, you know literacy and numeracy is our primary uh you know focus when children go to school um and the the man giving the presentation was was arguing that this was because. Uh, when Britain had its very extensive empire. um, In order to maintain that empire in an era prior to telecommunications, people needed to be able to write really clearly so other people could read their letters, and people needed to be able to add up so that they could keep track of the sums of money that were being involved in the trading. So there's a very curious way in which some of the essentials of our um, primary education are still focused on skills that were needed um you know in the 19th late 19th century um what would it i I would be really excited to see a future that that's that started from today (laughs) um uh, what skills do people use now what skills are do we and, and what skills do we still think are valuable and important from the past and how could we build a future of education that meets both of those desires and needs but also how can we develop a future of education that is less rigid less difficult to change less ossified in uh, in traditional and historical modes more flexible in responding to um the the evolution of our cultures and our societies that's what i would hope for
1: yeah and i think sometimes i'm um, uh, in my head i see in my head, I see the future of education. Uh, a lot of people with so many resources and easy to access these resources. Yeah,
0: yeah. So. And that was the other thing I was going to say is also, you know, I'm, I, I am based at Cambridge. I, I work primarily in an English context. Um, I am never, uh, or I try never to be forgetful of that privilege. Um, so a future of education in which actually you know, everybody can access it, irrespective of gender or location would be, I mean, that would, that would be the future. Um, Even if they were still accessing structures (laughs) that were outdated or traditional, um, if they were even able to access it, uh, that would be a step forward.
1: Let's hope it's going to be a wonderful future for our children. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you for having me. And also to our listener, thank you for joining us on this uh, wonderful journey into the future of education. If you enjoy today's episode, I invite you to listen to the previous episode of other guests uh, and scholars interested in the future of education.